Hey, I know you guys want to get to the podcast, but if you're a new listener, there are so many people who we have interviewed at this point, and the coronavirus has given us unprecedented access to all the people we've always wanted to talk to. Next up, Barack Obama. We just had... Um, <laughs> we had Lydia Yankovska, we, yeah. we had Jennifer Rivera-Rice, we had Russell Thomas, Emily Pogorelts, Justin Werner, Zachary James, Laura yes. Dixon Strickling. All right, all right, that's all right, right, just, right, right, right. That's just, yeah, that's just during the coronavirus, yeah. but um, That's just off the top of my head during the coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think we're all looking forward to our very special episode where we hold a seance and uh, talk to the spirit of Wagner for an entire hour. <laughs> Yeah, actually, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is going to join us for that one. She's going to take... Oh, Shaw has something to say. I, you know, the world's ultimate opera fan, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So, um, Renee Fleming and Joyce DiDonato, um, they both wanted to be on, so we're just going to put them on the same call because, you know, we're going to kill two birds with one stone. So that's... <laughs> that's, that's coming We're just up too soon. busy. We have, we have too many people booked. We're going to put them together. Nene seems fine with it. But seriously... Uh, Subscribe to the podcast on however you listen to podcasts and then just scroll down into our archives and see who we've interviewed. Usually their names appear as the title of the episode. And don't forget to share on Facebook and share on Twitter, even though we probably are not tweeting. <laughs> Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box School. Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. From the Ravenswood studio right here on the north side of Chicago, I'm your host, George Cedarquist, connecting you via Zoom to co-hosts Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right. Apparently, there are still places that want to hire conductor James Levine. In Chalk Talk, find out where the in the world presenting an alleged sexual predator and cult leader will still sell tickets. But first, the team goes inside the huddle with Joel Puckett, composer of Minnesota Opera's production about the 1919 Chicago White Sox with a libretto by Eric Simonson, that show called The Fix. Do we really have a guest who can shoot the breeze about sports? This is like Christmas in July for me. Two-minute drill. Women take the reins of New Orleans and Charlottesville Opera. And the Met stops giving away new online content. Going to talk sports a little bit. Slowly, slowly sports are coming back to the U.S. at least. Major League Soccer has started playing once again those games of course without any fans in the stands so basically no change since last season let's talk some opera huddle up let's go inside the huddle hailed as a visionary by the washington post and an astonishingly original voice by the philadelphia inquirer Joel Puckett's music has been described as soaringly lyrical and Puccini-esque, and even Parterbach, which is not known to praise new music, recently proclaimed Puckett should be a household name. In 2011, NPR Music listed him as one of the top 100 composers under 40 in the world. Joel Puckett is the composer of The Fix with the libretto by Eric Simonson. The Fix is a part of Minnesota Opera's digital opera series, 
with libretto, digital program, and complete audio stream available online until July 19th. Welcome, Joel Puckett. Hey, good to be here. So um, you're on the show today with uh, the entire team except for Weston. Weston is notorious for not liking new music, so he refused to be on the show today. So He's probably crying. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay. So um, many of our listeners might not know uh, who you are. Um, so can you just give us like the quick rundown of like why we should care? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I, yeah, um, I, I agree. I, sometimes I'm not sure of who I am either. That's fine. Um, so, yeah, I'm a composer of uh, what, you know, what we call classical music. Uh, I wrote uh, an opera for the Minnesota Opera called The Fix. Um, and uh, singers, I think, respond well to my music because my background is as a singer. No. I studied in, studied in undergrad uh, as a singer briefly and then moved to collaborative piano and then moved over to composition where I felt I sort of hit my stride. But all through undergraduate, I studied with a fantastic tenor named Michael Forrest, who was uh, a longtime Turin dot and Porgy and best person at the Met uh, back in the 80s and 90s. And um, he really taught me how to love the voice and how to treat the voice in a way that gives it the respects that respect it deserves while, while not feeling like you have to pander to it with just sort of like diatonic clusters. Hmm. Yeah. I listened to like the first half of the fix while I was preparing today and it's, it felt very, you know, tonal and like it didn't feel so rhythmically complicated that people wouldn't be able to get their entrances. I feel like, you know, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's approachable, but it is approachable. It's, it's very accessible music. Yeah, thank you so much. I tried. Yeah, no, I appreciate that because I think that there's some things um, when when you make the surface of something immediately attractive, and at the same time make it almost like a like a a wave that singers can jump on and feel comfortable riding. um, You can then slip in what I think of as like hard candy, right? Just things that are slightly more difficult and challenging to both the audience and the performer, but because there's already sort of a a trust from the audience to whatever's happening in the music and the performance at whatever's happening in the music that you can really go some interesting places. I think David, uh, another composer who does this really well is David Little. David T. And uh, Joel, you also studied in Michigan under William Balcom. You can say a lot of compliments about Balcom's music. One of them is it's so intelligible. What was it that you took away from working with Balcom that you put into your own music and the way you write for the voice. Uh, when you say intelligible, do you mean that the words are intelligible or that the, st- that the, the musical impulse is immediately intelligible? I'm, I mean both, really, that like you can hear the words and the words are matched so brilliantly with the musical impulse as well. Yeah, so I spent a good deal of time with Bill uh, as a student, several s- semesters spent with him, but then I also took his wife's cabaret singing class and um, did a lot of cabaret singing with her. And um, so I know that the two of them think about words being first in terms of 
the intent of what's being spoken directly to the audience. And then the music has to engage with that in a, in a, in a way that either uh, directly supports the word or if it's going to work against the lyric as, as we know music can do really successfully well, it has to be really obvious that you're uh, working against it the way Schubert might. So um, when we talked to David T. Little, uh, he had told us about his sort of apprenticeship at Opera Philadelphia uh, and having had to listen to composers like Verdi and Puccini to understand vocal writing. Um, have mm. you, do you have any models that you, or you know, composers that you really admire how they set English or how they set American English even more specifically? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll get to the direct question, but, but Puccini is the best. Uh, it will it will surprise no one that a reformed singer would would think that Puccini is the greatest uh, ever. So uh, at, at Peabody, I teach a class called um, "Getting to Know You," which is de- uh, for singers and composers, and it's all about developing the character through the arias that they have in an, in an opera. So. I think constantly about the way that Puccini writes for the voice, but how it's always grounded in the dramatic arc that's taking the character through the whole show. Back to the actual question, uh, the composers who I love in English, I mean, you mentioned him, Bill is my guy. Um, just because I, I feel like I spent so much time with him and understand the subtleties of what he's doing. Um, something like a, a View from the Bridge, just knocks me out. Although I think it, it, I haven't seen it in a while, and I wonder if it might be problematic uh, with with contemporary eyes. But the the vocal writing in it really just knocks me out, and the way you see the progression of the character into into madness uh, from Act One into the uh, opening of Act Two. Um, I also love Jennifer Higdon as a person and as a as a, a composer. Uh, I saw Cold Mountain several times and. I spent a lot of time teaching the opera, and so the the Ruby Ada uh, duets in particular, the the way that the way that they're they both progress throughout the opera, but the way that their voices work together uh, in this really that really the true love story of the opera, um, it, the way that she does that by having them more or less as the same vocal part and having them constantly rolling over each other in range, but you never lose sight of the text. It's, I think it's truly remarkable uh, and quite a feat. I'm not exactly sure how she did it. Hmm, I don't. And then I got to sh- go ahead. No, I don't know that show and I don't know who Ada and Ruby are. And I didn't read the book. I saw the movie and I don't remember uh, who those characters are. But um, you're saying that there's something about those duets that is sort of amazing for American opera. It's like sort of a benchmark of vocal writing. Oh, yeah, for- I, th- I think so. Okay. And 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 the the, the I, I can't remember if it's a quartet or I think it's a quartet. And near the end of Act One, the the listen. I, Ashley, do you know it? I, I saw you nodding. Do you know that show? I, I surface level at best. Um, yeah. I, I think I know which which part you're talking about. Um, this is really beautiful. And and the albums on Spotify uh, okay. or yeah. whatever, whoever's giving you money this week. Um, so, uh, no, but no, the. No, the, no. the <laughs> But it's called listen, and and Ruby uh, is encouraging Ada to really listen to the nature and listen to 
what the the earth has to teach her about what it wants. And it's just the most, just unbelievable writing. And then I really do have to shout out um, David Little, who I you know went to school with, and then another schoolmate of ours who's done really well is uh, DJ Spar, um, who wrote Approaching Ali, which was uh, Solomon Howard's first sort of star turn at, mm, at Washington so National Opera. And I think both both DJ and and DJ and I both uh, and David too approach text setting much differently uh, than the others do. But uh, there's something really profound in the way. DJ does it, I think. It's much more of a um, of a John Adams uh, type setting. Hmm. And to zoom out from that a little bit, what is it about setting English text and in opera in particular that that you find to be es- like especially different or unique than than other other composers and, and operatic styles? Well, I I mean I don't have personal experience uh, setting. Italian or German as an Italian or German speaker. So it's hard for me to really answer the question uh, directly. But I can say that it, for me personally, I have tended to set things a little more syllabic, uh, syllabically. I, I never can say that word. Syllabically. <laughs> there we go. Uh, syllabically than uh, with these long, florid, melismatic passages. Um, and I think that tends to be true of English opera, um, maybe because in order to get to good good vowels, in order to make the melesmas run, it sort of seems like some sort of abstraction of the actual language in English. Joel, The Fix, of course, is the most recent show. This is from March of 2019 at Minnesota Opera, which was a huge success. Uh, so you're a baseball fan from way back, huh? Way back. Yeah, with the, with the uh, Braves, with the Braves, right? Yes, the Atlanta. Yeah, the Atlanta Ball Club. We, uh, my dad used to take me. Um, my dad was a, a Dixieland jazz musician, uh, and so while we couldn't afford to get tickets to the games, uh, they would often hire his Dixieland combo to come play during the game, and that came with two tickets. So I would go with them, and then one of the the banjo player also had a kid so he would we would sit together while they roamed around the stadium and then after they were done after the seventh inning my dad would come sit with me and we would uh watch the rest of the game in those days no one was at the stadium so it didn't <laughs> we, we could move up pretty close well these days there's nobody at the stadiums <laughs> either um so the Chicago White Sox, the 1919 Sox, are the heart of the fix, the opera, and of course the story that that this is the the corrupt Southsiders, and of course being the diehard Cubs fan that I am, who would uh, expect anything less from the scum of the South Side to cheat uh, on their on their ball games? But what was it about that story beyond baseball that attracted you? So one of the things that Minnesota Opera. T- uh, preaches in their development is that they believe that that contemporary opera works best when it's a story of now. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be a story set contemporaneously, but it has to speak to contemporary issues. And uh, I had always thought that, um, the, that the story of the 1919 White Sox is that it was a worker's story at its heart. Um, the uh, undereducated or underprivileged being taken advantage of by um, uh, the wealthy elite 
few. And so when I was kicking around this opera idea, when they came to me, it was uh, 2014. And, you know, I had sort of entered my career prime or what should have been it in 2008, 2009. So I was sort of very personally hit by the financial crisis and the, all of the uh, political struggles that came out of that as we tried to find a better way forward. So really this, this fix is an allegory for um, the, the world we're living in right now. It's one of the reasons that we really want, we thought it was really important that we cast the show with an impossible cast if it were being literally taken as a 1919 story. Um, by by casting with the this amazing colorful cl- uh, cast, we were able to one give opportunities to people who absolutely deserve them, and two force the audience to reconcile with the visual that they're seeing against the backdrop of a historical timepiece, and then force them to maybe question what it is we're actually saying. Um, <laughs> we we were very excited to showcase the amazing talents of. Sydney Outlaw and Nick Davis, um, Jasmine. I mean, it's really, it's an amazing cast. Wei Wu was in the cast, I believe. Yep, Wei Wu. How could I forget? The big heavy. He's he's enormous. He is just enormous. The the voice is unbelievable. It's so funny. He was a last-minute replacement at the first piano workshop. And And he's got this really great, almost Mephistopheles- um, aria at maybe two thirds of the way through Act One, and he started singing it, and there's this nice little portamento down to a low G. And when you his room when he sang it, and the whole room started shaking, I was like, "Oh shit, we got a show!" Uh, and and it was I mean we we finished that run, and I walked over to Dale um, Johnson and said, "You you you you." You have to sign him to a contract for the show. He's got to be the guy. So, um, no, uh, Eric no. Eric Simonson, of course, also part of the creative team on that. He's a stage director. I'm a stage director myself. So mm-hmm. I'm always fascinated about the relationship between the composer and the stage director. What was one thing that was really successful in your collaboration with Eric Simonson on the fix? Well, so um, the thing about Eric is that he was a part of it from the very beginning, like very early. Um, So uh, Dale had come to me and asked me if I'd be interested in an opera. Of course, who wouldn't be? Um, And then what would you want to write? And I pitched him this idea, and they liked it. But the problem is they didn't know who would write the libretto. Um, We had talked about maybe going with Mark Campbell, and Mark and I had uh, talks, but Mark doesn't, know anything about sports. He certainly doesn't care anything about sports. So um, I happened to be in town uh, at the university when they were doing Dream of Valentino. And um, so Dale said, stop by. I want you to meet somebody. And Eric was in town directing. And so we went and got sushi together. We hit it off, talked about baseball. I had read his fabulous play, uh, Lombardi. Um and it turns out we have the same birthday and that we have sort of similar 
backgrounds. And so it just, it was really clear right away that we were going to work together very well. So um, he was really open. We we sort of storyboarded the entire show together before he'd written any of the libretto. Like, this is the scene, here's scene two, this should happen here. Really going through, like, this is the struggle, here's the um, here's the thing that's going to get in the way, and we're, how, how we're going to move past it. So he he was great and an unbelievable collaborator. Let me in on the process that early. So sports and opera don't seem to be, you know, that compatible to each other. I'm, I'm going to give you a question. You could take it any direction you want, but how do you see those two things fitting? How do you see opera as a language for sports? And what maybe did you do to inject some of that energy and some of that, you know, Americana? whatnot into the opera to give it its flavor of something that's about sports. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I know it's not the first thing that hits people's mind when they think contemporary opera, but I have to say, I mean, there've been quite a few now that I think are pretty darn good. I mean, Dan Summer King, uh, all the excerpts I've heard are really good. Um, you've got approaching Ali, you've got, um, a champion. I mean, I think that there are a number of, of, sport-related operas now. And I think it's because we live in a sport-obsessed country. Um, so if you're doing American opera, trying to think about um, uh, American metaphors, uh, American ideas and more American stories, I think that the struggle of sport just goes in nicely when you start thinking about the struggle of opera. If, if it's going to be more than just boy meets girl girl falls in love with boy, girl dies, boy cries, right? And that, it's, the opera's more than that now. Okay. Um, so do you have any, like, things that you listen to that you said, oh, that is like the sound of, of baseball, and I want to make sure that that noise or that whatever, the organ grinder, or I don't know what, you know, because I don't <laughs> go to baseball, is, is something that I want to the Dude, when was it the last time you, you went to the 1919 World Series? Apparently, if there was an organ grinder, <laughs> <laughs> what are some sounds that you wanted to make sure that got into your show, so that the audience, you know, understood, like you know, orally that this was the world of sports? So for me, it was trying to figure out, um, well, who was Joe? So, you know, he he came from sort of. Um, the, the hills of Appalachia. So I wanted to have his music stand out. So I, I used some uh, sort of vaguely bluegrass fiddle-ish music. But then I, the way that Copeland has sort of been co-opted to stand in for vast expanses of America um, and what a lot of people want to think America was when it was great, right? Without getting <laughs> too overtly political. But this this naive idea about how great it was. And uh, I wanted to map that on top of this very clearly not great time to create a kind of cognitive dissonance between the, the aural sounds of this innocence of baseball versus the very reality that these guys are getting screwed left and right. And, oh, by the way, nothing's changed. Um, so it was it's those kind of expansive orchestral gestures on top of the uh, with the the sort of bluegrass fiddle on top of it to sort of put it place in time joe in this very specific moment hmm 
Um, looking through your website, I noticed that you write a lot for military bands and for like wind bands and whatnot. And I'm just trying to figure out if like you're particularly patriotic or if there's a good <laughs> if there's a good market for writing uh, for wind ensemble, because, you know, there's a bunch of colleges that have those forces and it's a good way to pay the bills. It's interesting. My my dad was a freelance jazz musician. And then when we got a little bit older, he became a, a high school band director. And so I sort of grew up in the back of the band room. So that that was kind of my native language a little bit. Um, and then I avoided writing any wind music until I was finishing a doctorate at the University of Michigan, which has a, a sort of famously great uh, concert band. And uh, it, I, I, there were two two guys who were there, one named, uh, well, affectionately called H. Bob, but he's Bob, uh, H. Robert Reynolds, who's since gone to uh, USC and is now retiring this year. And then another man named um, Michael Haithcock. Uh, and... So the two of them took an interest in my music and were curious if I would write something. I write as I was finishing. And the thing that happens in the wind world is if you write one that's pretty good right out of the gate and they all share it with their friends, then it can really spread like wildfire. And, and David Little actually once said to me that he overheard two conductors saying, hey, hey, did you play the pucket yet? And it was these wind people, and he and he said he he literally said it's almost like they're trading baseball cards. Like, they're it's it's something that they're all excited about these new pieces, and they want to get the next one. And if you happen to be one of the people who is fortunate enough to be one of the cards they want for a little while, you can have some capital to spend. And for me, <clears throat> I don't know if you had a chance to poke through those pieces. I spent it by doing sort of insane projects. So a string quartet concerto for winds, a, a violin concerto, but the same orchestration as the Berg chamber concerto, or, you know, it's just things like that, that are not right down the middle of what you would think of as, okay, let's plop this on the 4th of July concert with the Marines. And, I found it. I found it incredibly, incredibly artistically fulfilling. Um, I, I I wrote a, a a piece for the opening of the new building at Northwestern. I know that y'all are North, uh, Mallory Thompson commissioned that, and um, it's one of my it's one of the pieces I'm most proud of um, because she said, "Write me a symphony." I said, "Okay, what do you do? You have anything?" She said, "No, I trust you. Do whatever you want." And so, I wrote a 24 minute adagio, and gave it to her and. You know, no one said anything to me, but that's fantastic. Whereas I think that that's very different than what people think of as the restrictions that might come with writing that kind of ensemble. It's been it's been a blessing to me to be able to go uh, back to these de relationships I've developed and the trust I've developed with these people. Hmm. I would also think that it kind of reinforces, uh, you know, when when you look at you know music for winds. Uh, it is it is decidedly an American art form. You know, the, the, the wind band, the wind ensemble is really kind of a thing that we, you know, do the most of and do do well. Um, I also wondered if it had anything to do with, um, you know, your your background, you mentioned, you know, being being in Georgia regionally. I don't know if this was the case for you. It certainly was for me that that where I grew up in the south, 
stringed instruments and the notion of an orchestra just wasn't a thing that was there. Uh, mm. The closest thing you would have to any sort of wind ensemble, most places had fires because voices were free and some church right. had a piano. Uh, and then if, if they were going to invest in things, uh, wind instruments were far more, and percussion were far more cost effective than trying to put together enough of a string section to like maintain an ensemble. Did you experience any of that growing up too? I can 100% appreciate what you're saying, but I think my situation might have been a little unique in that we lived just on the south side of Atlanta and my dad was a freelance tuba player. So I was at the Atlanta Symphony all the time because he was the, he was the second call tuba player. So if they're doing Symphony Fantastique, I'm sitting in the chair because there's no babysitter. Um, so like, I, but I, I appreciate what you're saying. And definitely there's an emphasis in that part of the world on band that there isn't on, on an orchestra. I don't know how true that is anymore, though. I, I mean, I haven't been there in a long, long time. I, yeah, I, I mean, again, it, it sort of, I think it varies by area. That was that was just my right. experience. And most of the folks that I know that have been really band heavy or, or have, have had a, a, both a, a, pas a passion and a talent and an appreciation for, for wind music, sometimes it, it stems from that. Um, but yeah, I, I love your comment about uh, conductors talking about composers like trading cards. I have heard that very conversation every year on the floor of the Midwest Band and Orchestra Clinic. It's, it's a delight. Yeah. Joel, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about your experience uh, as an educator and, and how mm -hmm. you take all this experience as a composer and working on new works with leading opera companies. How do you share that with your students? Yeah, I mean, I, I am so happy that I never went the freelance route. I, I, so, I, I get so much uh, artistic rebirth through teaching. One, they have so much energy and are so curious about everything and antagonistic against everything, as young people are supposed to be, right? And it forces me to constantly reevaluate things that I have previously held to be truth. And uh, so uh, forcing myself to constantly try to see the music from their perspective has kept me uh, fresh, I think, at least in my own artistic satisfaction. But yeah, I, there is some sense of when you're out working and then the students are often wanting to know like, okay, well, how did this actually work? Um, I'm always happy and wildly open to share about either how easy something was, but it was a fluke or how hard something was or, or how crushed I was when the Wall Street Journal said something nasty. You know, like we all feel these things. And I think that the students benefit from hearing that, the feelings that they have on a small level are the same feelings and struggles we have on, on, you know, on every level. The opera is The Fix. It is part of the digital opera series of Minnesota Opera, and it's available to July 19th. You can read the digital program and even read the libretto and listen to the entire show with the world premiere cast. Well, Joel Puckett, thank you so much for being on Opera Box Score. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I, I wanted to say, you know, long-time listener, first-time guest. <laughs> I love this team, Hugh. I know you do. Look, psychotics on the mound, warming up. Give me eight to
Yes, and one Joe Jackson, any day, any team, can't lose one hell of a player. I'll grant you that. And much more, my friend, much, much more. This is Opera Box School with George Cedarquist, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, Ashley Hardgrave, and Oliver the Man Camacho. So that Joe Puckett, um, nice. He's a nice guy. And he's so, a nice guy, and he's he a is. great composer. Yeah, I can't believe he listens to our show. That's the thing where I'm, I'm feeling like probably way more people listen to us than we even realize. So, um, thank you. Is that a warning? <laughs> or <laughs> what's what's so crazy is that like as a retired horn player. I had to like hold myself back from asking him a lot of like wind piece questions. And cause I was like, no, no, this is an opera show. We're here to talk about opera, but I'm like, let's talk about this. Let's talk about your percussion trio. So don't be surprised if I like send you a separate email to ask about your percussion trio called Wapner. And if it is in fact named after judge Wapner of the people's court. Um, well, the kids finally twisted my arm and I got them Disney plus. And after doing the, uh, requisite viewings of Frozen 2. We actually moved on to Hamilton and as a family over four nights watched Hamilton. Wow. Well, I absolutely have thoughts about Hamilton, but first I want to know how that went. Yeah, let's go with Ben's take first. Here. Oh, yeah. Be- so this Here is strange. So my, my fourth grader, he knew all the lyrics. We've never, I've never seen the show. I, I don't have the album. We've never played it. And he knew all the words. I think that kind of speaks for itself. My second grader didn't have a clue what was happening and nor would I expect her to. I have, I have lots to say about it. It's, um, I have to preface this by, I was, I was late to the Hamilton party and late to the Hamilton bandwagon. Um, I was certain that if something was so universally beloved by so many masses of folks who would probably like things that I wouldn't like, that I was clearly going to hate Hamilton. Uh, I was wrong. Uh, I was blown away. Uh, I'm talking about the piece itself, and then we can move on to the film production. Um, I was blown away by the piece itself and how cross-cultural it was, meaning the combination of hip-hop and musical theater and American history and how it gave nods to to all three. Um, I, you know, I'm a Emma Lin-Manuel Miranda fan. I think, and, and for people that have never gone to something like this or, or think they might not enjoy something like this, I would encourage everybody, especially now that it's so universally available, to give it a shot. I don't expect you to love it as much as me or as much as anybody else, but anybody who is a true music fan, the key word here is going to be prosody. And the way that the words fit together and the way that they rhythmically jump all around meter you know the the women give beautiful musical performances a number of the men do as well but where i think the real smartness is is in the way the words fit together what do you think matt i i absolutely agree that it's like maybe even i mean have we found someone who can stand up to steven sondheim where when it comes to wordplay like maybe it, it, like they're at least equal if if you, you, I, we're not even gonna we're not gonna broach the subject about whether one of them is greater. You talk about the amazing performances and that was really what I took away from from getting to watch this as someone who listened to Hamilton many, many times, many, many, many times 
and was thankful to get the chance to see it live one time even, just the level of performance that is captured on film here is staggering from almost everyone in the cast. Uh, I was watching it with my family who are music lovers, but no, but no one else is a professional musician. And I kept being like, you guys know that you're watching like a masterclass in, in musical theater performance right now with Leslie Odom Jr. in particular, just absolutely blew me away. It was so powerful and committed and eloquent and elegant and all of the adjectives that I, that I can think of. I, I knew he was good. Like I'd seen him on smash. I'd listened to the recording, but to be that good in a, in a performance of a show that is that brilliant is just another level. Yeah, and the version on Disney Plus, I mean, so it's like a five or six camera edit of a live performance from June of 2016. My understanding is that there are a few moments of footage that were recorded uh, separately, so not live, and then kind of intercut Close in. Yeah. The, the world was a very different place in June of 2016. That's all I'm going to say. There was no Trump and there was no pandemic, and it's interesting I mean, hey, it only took me four years to watch Hamilton, but it's interesting to try and think about the world in June of 2016 when that Broadway production was done, then captured, and then later released. Hey, let us know what you're thinking. It's part of our bailiwick. It's part of our wheelhouse. You can tell us what you're thinking about Hamilton. Opperboxscore at gmail.com. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. In case the world isn't on fire enough, let's add to the flames. Maggio Musicale in Florence is somehow, for some reason, coaxing disgraced conductor James Levine out of retirement in January 2021 to conduct performances of Damnation of Faust and the Brahms Requiem. So in case you're wondering how all of your favorite artists are holding up in the pandemic, you can breathe a sigh of relief that James Levine, of all people, will be back to work soon. Matt... Matt? It, I'm baffled. Yeah. I mean, I thought we talked about this. <laughs> right, Ashley? I mean, yes, we did talk about this on a number of episodes of this very show. Um, I, I have had to do some deep breathing and some, uh, some visualization exercises to calm down enough to get past this news. Um, but when I think about it, I think about three points. Um, the notion of if it doesn't affect me personally, it's not really happening. Uh, artistic blindness and fiscal panics about the future. So Pereira, the gentleman who put forth the statement that he wants to protect the accused and he's hired Levine and is very excited. If any one of Levine's victims was Pereira's son or nephew, there is no chance that Levine would have been hired there, but because this didn't affect anybody that he knows personally, out of sight, out of mind. I, I get, I get that, but I'm also deeply frustrated by it. Um, also, you know, as monstrous as the allegations and the lawsuits and everything that we know about Levine's history now are, James Levine is still James Levine in terms of his artistic contributions to the art form. He's, and I'm not joking, he is legitimately how I learned what an orchestra was. Uh, I, I did get an opportunity to work under his baton, and it was one of the most enlightening and artistically gratifying experiences of my musical life. I cried after the first rehearsal because I was so overwhelmed. And 
so gratified by the experience. I understand his artistic value. That does not, for me at least, negate the horrors of what we now know transpired with him during his career. I do understand it, but I, I cannot forget about that. But finally, you know, Majo, like every other artistic institution, is probably scared shitless about the future and if they're going to be able to make enough money to keep the doors open with any sort of performing. So if you can slam dunk this fallen angel in a culture that is still chauvinistic enough that something pesky like assault wouldn't bother you as much as, say, the uppity Americans, you're going to take it and you're going to make money off of it. I personally will not forgive you for it, but I know that it is something that people can do and I can understand the um, the moral subtraction and mental math that it would take to get there. And going even farther than that, I'm not honestly sure if this quote-unquote rehabilitation would have been possible without just the sheer number of crises that have happened in the last <laughs> year. Has it Good only point. been a year, year and a half? since that story broke, like just try to think in your list about the number of shocking things you've heard about and experienced since we found out about the James Levine story. It's a, it's a different world. We're living in a, di in a completely different universe. And the, sh the initial shock and awe of that story has kind of faded into the background. And we're, especially as like of those scandals I just talked about, like how many of them were also about bad behavior of entitled white guys, like, when you think about these, when you think about these compared to like Jeffrey Epstein, it is like that's a different, that's almost an entirely different category. And James Levine and the Met settled this dispute out of court about a year ago, uh, since neither one of them really wanted this story to stick around in the headlines. And so compared to like Domingo, where this blow up was very long and protracted and like more in the foreground. James Levine keeping a low profile, like he's been able to sneak to sink into the background a little bit. And when you combine that with the fact that for 45 years, 50 years, the line was that James Levine was an, incom an incomparable genius with emphasis on the incomparable part. And that might be true in some respects, but you don't just automatically throw people out that you revered if you don't flex the muscle of holding people to account. And we are seeing right now in America that we have utterly failed to hold people to account all across the board uh, and to judge them by the standards that we expect everyone to be judged by. Uh, rather, our reflex is to tolerate these rumors about someone like Levine that, that might be true and we think could be even true, but when we respect someone's art, we can tolerate the rumor and, and put that on the back burner. Um, and that, I think, in and of itself serves as some kind of inoculation against the horror when they break out into the surface. Um, and that undergirding of respect doesn't entirely go away from enough of the opera going public that they can take a bet on rehabilitating him like this. I think that a theme that we've been getting to time and again these past couple of years is how our art form that we all on this panel, we all love so much and we want to see like thrive, how inhospitable it can be if you are on the outside and, you know, there are plenty of outsiders in opera, but can you think about people who like have suffered um, sexual violence or being abused or taken advantage or anything like that? 
to just like, you know what? Opera is so effed up. I mean, people will go pay money to see this guy conduct. What is wrong with you people? You know, and I love Italian culture. And I would love to think that Italians, because they're so great at music and at art and at food, that they're also like really evolved. But what does it say about the people in Italy who will pay, you know, money to be a part of that event? It's just like, I can't even reconcile it in my brain. Well, I think they sort of know and they, they sort of don't know. I mean, you know, you can read the newspapers, you can read online, you can do all the research. And yet, like, if you're not in that country, it can feel oddly distanced. How dreadful, though, that the increased toxicity of the world that we live in is now being used as a smokescreen to try and cover up or hide as some pathetic fig leaf of propriety the allegations against James Levine. Like, I just I just don't buy it, and I, I just don't think it should be forgotten about, and I don't think we're going to forget about it in this country, at least. I don't think you're going to see him conducting in this country again, which is obviously why he's in Italy. I mean, I think we're now getting to a point where, as a cruel joke, but we might actually need this yardstick for the future. We need to like line up all the bad men in order of the severity of their transgressions and be like, was this a, was this a Levine? Was this an Epstein? Was this a, et cetera. Uh, and, and we can have like a scale of offenses only just so we can wrap our head around how truly awful some folks are. Maybe we can get uh, Doug Dodson to draw up something on that. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. You can now pay $20 to hear Jonas Kaufmann sing in a library. The Metropolitan Opera announced that over the coming months, it will present some of its biggest stars in a series of recitals from idyllic locations streamed live. The inaugural series begins beginning July 18th, will offer performances from Renee Fleming, Anna Trebko, Joyce DiDonato, Bryn Terfel, Angel Blue, Lisa Davidson, and others. Tenor Alan Clayton gave readers of the UK's Telegraph a little lesson on the singer economy and the threat of financial ruin as companies continue to cancel arrangements. Quote, when I tell people outside the opera world about this, they can't believe how unbalanced it sounds. Well, maybe y'all should have been reading Middle Class Artist. That is middleclassartist.com. In a wide-ranging interview with Swiss-German daily newspaper Aargauer Zeitung, Piotr Bechawa yes. said he is ready to don blackface when he takes on the role of Verdi's Otello. Quote, There are visual stimuli that affect the audience. They triple the effect. This includes Otello's black skin. The visual kindles the magic of emotions. You're right, Piotr. There are emotions kindled by that black makeup. Take a listen to our archives because we thought we were done talking about this in 2020. Meanwhile, Opera Wire has published an interview with Kevin Short in which the black bass baritone lists just a few examples of how explicit racism has interfered with his career. Quote, when I had a fest contract with the theater Basel in Switzerland, the opera director wanted to produce Così Fan Tutte with me singing Guglielmo. 
The tenor that was slated to sing Ferranda was also a black singer. When the guest director arrived and found out he had two black singers in leading roles, he objected and stated that having two black singers would essentially make this production a black opera. The theater chose to side with the director and we were released from our assignments. A link to the full interview can be found on operaboxscore.com. A starry new coalition, including Audra McDonald, Brian Stokes Mitchell, and Billy Porter, otherwise known as My Dream Dinner Party, is vowing to fight racism in theater. Dubbed Black Theater United, among its plans are to develop mentorship programs for young Black artists, to work for social change by pressing for greater participation by hard-to-count communities in the census, and to review theater industry practices and assisting Black theater artists. Audra, when you're done with that, can you start one for your sisters and brothers in opera? Thank you. My queen, Amanda Forsyth, told the Massachusetts-based Beverly Citizen, what it was like to survive coronavirus during a production of Fidelio at Covent Garden in a cast that included Jonas Kaufman and Lisa Davidson. Quote, it was bizarre. I had all the symptoms right down to loss of smell. But even though it was Covent Garden, I didn't have a cover. I was sick the whole time, but I just hung in there. You don't want to strand the rest of the cast. With dim prospects of live performances returning soon, Forsyth added, I'd be thrilled if every audience member and the instrumentalists wear masks. You might find a link to that interview on our website. Live performances have been canceled across the globe, leaving singers out of work. But in Madrid, Teatro Real spent weeks planning out a socially distanced production of Traviata with Marina Rebecca, Michael Fabiano, and Artur Ruchinski. 50% of the audience capacity allowed. Orchestra has been divided in half, with each half playing for three consecutive days in rotation. Each chorister had a designated distanced area, and so, uh, excuse me, soloists had taped out, quote, boxes from which to perform. Insert joke about the irony of a central character and an infectious disease here. Just in time for 2021, Chicagoland's Ravinia Festival has announced Jeffrey P. Hayden will be the new CEO and president. Hayden has led the Caramore Festival for the past 12 years with previous stints at Ojai Music Festival, Chicago Symphony, and Fort Wayne Philharmonic. The director of artistic operations for Portland Opera, Claire Burovac, has been announced as the New Orleans Opera's next general director and the company's first female GD, effective September 15th. At Portland Opera, Borovac is credited with expanding the company's community engagement and education programs, as well as developing the company's resident artist program into one of the U.S.'s most competitive apprenticeships. The Charlottesville Opera has announced that Christina Deaton de Maria will become the new general director. Ugh. De Mer, De Mer is probably her name. Christina, come on the show and tell us. Has worked as the COO and executive director of the Chicago Children's Choir during which she worked to set new standards of excellence and help the organization's financial sustainability. In partnership with the Met, the Guggenheim will be presenting two new virtual commissions in their Works and Processes series. Let Me Freeze Again to Death by Missy Mazzoli is an electronically composed work which includes samples from Henry Purcell's Cold Song from King Arthur. Vocals are done by friend of the show, Anthony Roth Costanzo. Director of the Estonian National Opera, Ayver Mae, has been suspended for two months following allegations of sexual harassment. Following an extraordinary meeting 
after which the Council of the Estonian Opera Chairman resigned. That council announced that Maie would be suspended from his contract until a full investigation was made. On this disabled list, the Teatro dell'Opera di Roma has announced a cast change for this month's Rigoletto. The company announced that Roberto Frontali will take over the title role in Verdi's masterpiece for Luca Salzi, who is ill. Exit stage right, Italian soprano Gabriella Tucci has passed away at the age of 90. A striking and an authoritative interpreter of the heroines of Verdi and Puccini and frequent singer at the Metropolitan Opera, Tucci made her Metropolitan Company debut in 1960 and sang over 250 performances with the company. Ennio Morricone, Italian film composer, died at 91 on July 6th. Edward Alley, former manager of the New York Phil and associate director of the Juilliard Opera Center, died on Sunday at 85. And finally, Irish Germanic soprano Miriam Murphy has died at the age of 48. And on this day, July 13th, in 1668, the first performance of Chesty's opera, The Golden Apple in Vienna. This was composed for the wedding of Leopold I of Austria. On this day in 1924, the birth of Italian tenor Carlo Bergonzi in Parma. And in 1929, the birth of Marcella Kobe soprano in Montegalda. And that's your two-minute drill. That was Gabriella Tucci from the studio recording of Il Trovatore, which stars also um, Franco Corelli, conducted by Thomas Shippers. And I have that recording. And yeah, I I love that voice. It's like if we had a voice like that today, she'd be she'd be the star. But it's really only because of who she was having to compete against in the sixties that <laughs> yes. that we probably don't know her so much. People like uh, between Tabaldi and Scotto, and, and then you know, the Renatas. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> coming up. Gabriella Tucci, rest in peace. So, um, this story just popped up the other day the idea that the Met is now going to start charging for some of its online content. They had announced their you know, week of streaming, um, like when they normally do, but then they sent out a, a correction email. On second thought, we're actually putting in this Jonas Kaufman concert in the middle of this week. And you could pay 20 bucks to hear it. Um, I don't know about this. I mean, it's going to be with piano, and the pianist is going to be in the same room as Kaufman. Um, I mean, I like him enough. I mean, I would pay 20 bucks to hear him sing in person. That's for sure. I'd pay probably 80 bucks to hear him sing in person. But uh, I don't know. How do we feel about giving the Met our money to give they us? They are deaf. <laughs> they are definitely bending over backwards to make sure that people don't think that this is going to be some sort of leader recital. They're like in the press in the press conference, they're like, "Don't worry, it's going to be arias. You're not going to have to sit through any of that sentimental, difficult art song that I know you you our patrons want so much." I'm like, "Well, that seems like I hope that there is some sort something in there that takes advantage of the fact that this is like a little bit more of an intimate medium 
than the big opera house too. Like that seems like a waste if they were not if they were not going to do it that way. And like a fundamental misunderstanding of what they're trying to do here. Like it definitely seems like they need to they want to keep their name in the news. They they can use this as some as as donation drives, but they you know, if they're for I don't necessarily know if I want to give them my money if they're just gonna cut all everyone who works from them loose at the first sign of problem. Hmm. Yeah, I mean it's uh you know clunky execution and announcement, you know, botching aside, this is going to be the wave of the future, at least for the foreseeable future in terms of how these houses make money. I'm fully divorcing the fact that it's the Met. I'm fully divorcing how so many of their employees found out over email that they were going to be furloughed. I'm thinking just about what is going to be the new artistic model for at least the next six to 12 months for, for houses. And I think they're they're on the right track with it. Um, that said, you know, there's all of the extra met math that you need to do in terms of, you know, questionable choices and bad moves on, on behalf of doing right by their employees. But it just seems like this is going to be the first of many that we're going to see across the board. I think about similarly, but differently. Um, I don't know if either of you guys are familiar with Eddie Izzard, the comedian, mm -hmm. um, but he, He's, first of all, I love him so much. Eddie, I know you're not listening to this, but if you are, please call me. Oh my God. Um, but he did a presentation, um, like a new show broadcast live. Uh, it was a, a condensed solo performance of Great Expectations. And it was freaking delightful, first of all. Second of all, um, it was only viewable through purchasing a ticket. And for that, I think it might've been 20-ish pounds. So for me, it was something that I gladly put forward because it was going to be such an interesting, unique experience. To hear Jonas Kaufman sing, I yeah, I might I might throw twenty bucks that way, um, especially if I'm starting to fully understand that this is this is what we do now to hear new live art. I'll say that it does make me it does make me wonder what's going to happen with Opera YouTube. There's such a big community of all these YouTube videos that are out there because you weren't competing directly with live performance, uh, even more so than like people would argue about watching bootlegs of musical theater, which is a fraught discussion in and of itself. But with opera, you can, it, you can really make the clear case that these are doing different things. And now they're not able to do different things quite so much. Uh, right. So I really wonder if you're going to see more and more copyright claims coming up against material that needs to get taken off of YouTube so that people can commodify it. I'll just say that I hope they learned from the Metropolitan at Home Gala, which art, <laughs> which artists are actually engaging on camera, um, you know, in that environment without an audience. I can't say that Jonas Kaufman did so great uh, at the Met at Home Gala. And we know that Anna Netrebko didn't even try, that she like, you know, phoned it in with a performance that she had prepared for another gala, like that was actually on a stage with the pianist and it was really well produced, you know. I think Joyce will do great because she just loves the camera so much. I'm curious to watch Angel Blue because I went to her recital and she's so warm and lovely. I think Renee... I think that comes through in videos I've seen of her, yeah. Angel Blue. I think Renee will do great, obviously. Um, but, you know, we don't... Lisa Davidson is not that tested, you know. She's relatively new and it's sort of a big platform for her to be sharing with these people who are like the megawatt stars. Anyway, moving on to other tenors, Pyotr Bechawa. We are, ah! we're being a little bit unfair because this interview is, is actually wide ranging and it's only like one fifth of what he said. 
but of course, this is the newsmaker. Um, and I'll, I'll defer back to Russell Thomas that like he's not bothered by the blackface. So um, he wants it to be good singing. He wants to be the right voice. Is Bechawa the right tenor for Botello? Not yet. Maybe he will be in 10 years. But um, yeah, I don't think he, he displayed much sensitivity uh, in at least in, in the way he described it, you know. And I, I love getting the, the perspective of African-American singers about whether or not this this practice constitutes blackface. I think that's an important part of the conversation to have. I don't feel like it is the job of the white singers to <laughs> use it as a permission slip to act without considering the, the impact and the consequences that it has. Thank you, because there are absolutely representatives of the black community who would absolutely not be okay with our buddy Piotr putting on this makeup to do this role. Um, apologies for the for the shout and anger. I have been <laughs> holding it in, and I thought I would get through this segment without it. It's the the sheer entitlement of that statement is the thing that I find so appalling. Again, yes, I defer to Russell Thomas and his his assessment, and I and I honor and respect that because he is someone whose opinion I hold in very high regard. But it is it is impossible for me to not feel anger and borderline rage and pun intended tone deafness when I hear and read this statement. You know, yes, there were a lot of things that were covered in that article. I don't care about anything else in that article. After reading this, <laughs> I hung up. I was like, I'm done. Forget it. And the Kevin Short interview that showed up also in Opera Wire talks about the similar, talks about whether or not having skin darkening makeup in Aida should count as blackface. And he it kind of comes down on the same side as Russell Thomas, which is that it's not blackface in the in the Jolson sense of the word. But if you listen to the other stories that he tells about this business, that does not mean that 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 the racism is not just seeping out of it in other ways. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just feel like this is not this is not a, a period in time when any Caucasian artist should take any of this as, as you described it so eloquently a permission slip to move forward. This is a time for Caucasians of, of all vocations. It's a lot of Asians, but you stay with me um, to sit back and to listen and to take charge in the places where we can actually take action and, and influence change going on stage and doing the trope that we've been doing for 80 years is not that place. So there's that Teatro Real Madrid story of the Traviata separated. I mean, I saw some of the, you know, the pictures from the stage and it's actually, you know, I think that the audience would get a good performance. It's a concept, but, you know, orally, it probably sounded pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, you know, you're right. The photographs actually look really, really fantastic. And I mean, to be fair, um, the moment when Violetta, you know, push it, you know, puts her hand up so that Alfredo can't come any closer to her. I mean, that plays right into the plot line. Yeah. Um, so that was, you know, a really great piece of direction. I couldn't help but because of the way that um, all of these boxes are taped off for the chorus, which is very striking and beautiful to look at, actually, I couldn't help but think of um, productions of the musical chess um, when so many things are in like a chess and checkerboard way. So while I'm looking at this, like I have the you know, music of Abba's chess going through my head in combination with Traviata. It's been a very confusing afternoon. 
I, I heard that they were going to put Nobody's Side into Act 2 of Traviata, though. I would die. <laughs> that went over my head. Oliver, that's like head. the it's like the belt showpiece okay. for the female lead in chess. It's so good. I mean, all things considered, I think Traviata is actually a really good piece to test drive this sort of thing on to see, like, if, if Traviata can pull this off, there's enough stuff rooting for it that it, it kind of makes sense. But, like, if you took this sort of staging and this sort of setup and tried to apply it to another piece, what's the first one off of both of your guys' heads? Like, off the top of your head that this might work for or, conversely, be a complete disaster for? I mean, I honestly think it would alternately work and be a disaster for Boen. Like, anything that has to do with... Anything that has to do with the lovers and their, like, growing isolation as circumstances tear them apart, great. Anything about the camaraderie of four young friends living in a garret in Paris, difficult. Not impossible, but definitely not going to be the stagings that you're used to seeing. Are you happy that uh, Audrey McDonald is uh, taking the reins of uh, trying to solve racism in theater? I'm happy when Audrey McDonald does anything, but officially, yes, I'm very delighted about this. I appreciate that there's kind of a past-ish, present-ish, future-ish represented in each one of the people that are in this Black Theater United. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm really excited about this. I also think that, you know, the the thing about pushing people in the census, that, that was kind of a, a left field thing, but also a brilliant move that more people should be working on. I mean, we've got another 10 years before we're going to do it again, but still, it was, I thought it was a nice move. Um, I want to talk about one more story before we uh, go to Good Call, and that's Amanda Forsythe having coronavirus. That is so horrifying to me. I love her so much, but to think that maybe that entire cast has it or had it uh, because of their proximity to each other. And uh, who knows, maybe they're all immune now and maybe they actually should be getting all the jobs because uh, they won't infect anybody anymore because they have the antibodies. Who knows? We don't know. If, if they do, we don't know. No one knows. No, no, to Bene, no one knows if there is immunity to this virus yet. Yeah. Yeah. But, not how it's happening. I, I was scanning the article earlier. When did this production happen? I'm trying to figure out how long ago. Right it was before in February. Yeah. Right before the, February. Yeah. Okay, so February in the UK, not quite as prevalent as... I mean, it, I feel we've been living the same week over and over again for four months now, so it, it like it, it's shocking to me when I when you go back and look at how quickly in March things turned around. Like, it was a matter of eight days before between people being like, well, you'll just need to wash your hands more. And, well, you're not really going to be leaving your house anymore. Like, Absolutely. I mean, even even in my recording of this show in the early days of COVID, I was like, oh, just follow the CDC guidelines. We don't know enough yet. Wash your hands. Now, if you listen to previous episodes, I sound like a full-on COVID denier. I, I meant well, <laughs> listeners. I meant well. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. All right, let's wrap this show up. We got good call, bad call. As always, I think for the first time in recent memory, Oliver Camacho has neither a good call nor a bad call. So we'll Is throw that in. your good call? <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually do have a have a good call. Um the family and I, we decided to watch trolls world tour the movie if i don't know if you've seen the trolls franchise uh there is a classical music component to trolls world tour and there is a classical music conductor in the movie who is voiced by none other than gustavo dudamel 
And he gets about five lines, but boy, does he make every bit of it. Matt Cummings, you got a good call or a bad call? I got a, I got a call. I'm, I'm just heartbroken as I've been reading over social media tonight about the news of Naya Rivera's tragic passing. Uh, she's an actress who meant a lot to a lot of people by portraying an openly gay Latina character on the TV show Glee. Uh, and her performance really took what was not a very interesting role at first and turned it into uh, a pretty groundbreaking one. And it's just so sad to see the loss of life like this. So my thoughts go out to everyone who knew her personally and who hold her dear. Thank you for that. Ashley Hartgrave. Two little good calls to help end on a, a couple of high notes. Uh, the first one is uh, Blake Chennings and the, and the folks at Sea Glass Theater Company have a new edition of Millennials Describe Operas in One Minute. It's abduction. It's hilarious. Um, I encourage you to check it out on Facebook. Uh, and then also, uh, there's this really cool video that's been popping around. Um, Sarah Willis, who is a horn player, um, she has done this syncopated Caribbean-infused rendition of the Allegro from Mozart's Third Horn Concerto, uh, and she does it on the streets of Havana with the Havana Lyceum Orchestra. It is infectious. It is beautiful. It is it is the moment of happy that you need right now. Um, so well, I will. Uh, let's hear a little bit I of it right now. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at normwaddell.com. He's got a brand new website, N-O-R-M-W-O-O-D-E-L.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. This podcast version of our show available wherever you get your pods. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue this conversation about opera in air conditioning. We're back with an all-new show next Wednesday, July 22nd, with an interview featuring baritone Theo Hoffman, plus more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more cold drinks. Join us.